Take us back. What's your story of coming to know Jesus? It's your story of faith. How long have you been a believer for? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's traditional, um, except for one element. Um, and that, you know, my parents were both Christians. Uh, they dragged me along uh, to Sunday school. Um, I used to kick my feet. I did not want to go. They used to, they dragged me to fellowship, didn't want to go. And then about year nine, um, I realised that girls were there. And, um, <laughs> and it, it changed. I became very interested um, and I was a very regular attender. Um, but, it, but it was in the, the last year, effectively, there was this very faithful um, young man who picked us all up, a group of five or six of us in Bible study. He'd go to all our houses, pick us all up, and then we'd have it at one and then he'd drop us all home. He used to do that uh, every week. Um, and one of the members... Um, his name was uh, Jeff. His nickname was Bush Beast. Uh, he's, he's kind of a, he, he kind of had this wild shock hair and these kind <laughs> of wild eyes. And he um, became a Christian in amongst this group. And we, we, we used to just muck around. We never really paid attention, uh, particularly this other friend and I. And we were on a tent in Crescent Head, uh, for those who know Crescent Head, and it was kind of raining and windy. And literally a one-person tent, there's three of us huddled in there with the bush beast at the end. Uh, and Bushy was kind of looking at us and he said, you know, Mike and Mike, you know, do you know how much Jesus loves you? And I said, yeah, yeah of course we do. Like, no, and, and he said it three or four times to the point that we stopped. Wow. And, and I was like, what is he on about? What is he really on about? So from that point... In the Sunday services and the, the, the Bible studies, both Mike and I started to pay attention. And, you know, it wasn't long before the, the word hit me and, um, you know, grabbed my heart. And I stood up, classic kind of Sunday school event uh, in, in the church, the year end, year 12 camp around the, the yeah. campfire and, and gave my uh, life to the Lord. And people might not know this, but you were actually thinking about going into full-time Paid ministry at one point. Yes, right? yeah, I failed. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that, that was part of it. I think that, um, you know, after becoming a Christian, went to university, went, went into the workforce, was, was kind of leading youth groups and involved in the church, but I really felt um, a, a real wrestle. How was I going to spend my life? How could I sort of live my faith and, you know, what I did day to day have an impact mm. on it? And I felt a bit disconnected in finance and I had this long wrestle um, and eventually, I <coughs> came to the conclusion, I think I'm going to become a minister. I think that's what I want to do. And there's a place called Regent College, and I'd been reading J.I. Packer and Eugene Peterson. I don't know if people know them. Uh, they were over there, and I thought, that's where we're going. And I made this decision and uh, at a breakfast, Christian prayer breakfast, actually, in the city, with my wife next to me. <laughs> and I said, I said, Karen, um, I have to go but we're going to Bible college. I'm going to become a minister. I'll see you tonight. Um, <laughs> and just as a tip, like that's a little more conversation needed. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that, so that was it. And, and we went over there. Um, it was an incredible time. But, you know, for almost from the day I was there to the day I left, it actually, everything kind of pointed to actually, maybe it's not a minister. Maybe you can serve it another way. Um, and I was kind of convicted there that it was politics, actually. So that's so I left going to become a church minister and came out thinking that, 
there might be politics. Would you ever recommend men taking a year out of, to study the Bible full time? A hundred percent. It was uh, it, both my wife and I'd say it was the best year of our life. It was, it was unbelievable, and they, and they designed it. Regent College. It, I mean, you can do it anywhere, but it was designed. I mean, I was alongside people who were training to be ministers, people who were just taking a year off their career, um, alongside missionaries as well, and this incredible. Uh, sort of period of growth. I mean, you know, the, the demands of job off reading. I was reading books. I mean, I had this experience while I was at university and I read every reading. Um, I didn't used to do that before. I mean, um, so, yeah, but, but it's just the, the, the whole community, you know, challenging you, exhorting you, uh, strengthening you in your faith. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, I, I think it would be about the best way you could spend a year. Fantastic. Tell us then about how you ended up in politics. How were you called into that area? Well, it's so it, it was at Regent. So um, when you arrived, you wrote a paper, and it was a, it was really fascinating. You, you wrote a paper on your uh, life journey and your Christian journey, and what brought you to this point, and then where you were going to go. And so I wrote this long paper and was enthusiastic about um, you know how I was going to serve you know the a flock as a minister, and um, I look forward to doing that. That was my ending conclusion. Um, and the, this is like three weeks after having arrived, and the, the lecturer put there, you know, or in Australian politics. <laughs> and, 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 and all I'd mentioned in my paper is that my father had been in politics and, and I had no interest in it. Um, I was proud of what he did, da, 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 but I now look to become a church minister. So th- that, that was the stop me in my tracks moment. And then for the rest of the year, it was just... Did he give you a good mark on the... Well, the, you, you don't get a mark on Christian life. Okay. Like, you, know, <laughs> you know, that's six out of ten. You know, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's more to start a discussion and thinking and, and we, you know, all spoke about our papers and, uh, and yeah, so it was, a, it was an unbelievable year where I just rested in that and, and became incredibly excited and convicted um, and it felt absolutely that was the direction I should go. It's amazing, almost like God was prompting you through yeah. your marker. So obviously you, you became Premier. Was that in your plans to become Premier of New South Wales? How did that come about? <laughs> uh, no, no. Look, I can honestly say that uh, when I went in, and it was about 10 years after that, you know, so there was, I, I ran for pre-selection and lost, you know, humiliatingly, and then lost a little less humiliatingly. Um, and then on the third attempt, which was almost 10 years later, you know, I won by a handful of votes. Um, and so I was thinking that maybe that wasn't what I was supposed to do, but, you know, once, once I had that, it became clear. And I always thought, that, well, I could use finance. Uh, I, I love my community. What a, what a chance to serve my community. Um, deeply, deeply excited by that. But at the same time, if I did have the chance to get into government, there potentially I could use the finance in a treasury role and kind of set the state up, you know, and, like, try and help in terms of, you know, driving uh, the economy, but fundamentally building infrastructure that we didn't have. Uh, and that was really the, the goal. So the goal was to become treasurer. And <clears throat> about a week before uh, Barry resigned, I'd, you know, I had a close group of friends. I said, look, I think, I think I'm going to leave... Um, you know, at the election, so I would have done four years of treasurer. I think, of, you know, eight years in, made a contribution and leave. Um, so it was the furthest thing. So then a week later, 
you know, Barry does his press conference and resigns, and you know, I find myself 24 hours later the premier. So, and it wasn't a bad first day, I've got to say, because the um, the royals came out. Um, so it was William and Kate. So this surreal experience where, you know, I was the state treasurer that no one would really know what I was doing or who I was, as the honest truth, I know that. Um, and then I found myself in the middle of Manly Beach uh, with 20,000 people uh, and Wills and Kate, and I was hosting them. That was your first day? That was the first day. Wow. Day one. I said, well, I said, well this could be fun. Um, not every day was like that. I mean. <laughs> Um, I, mean, I think that even that story you just shared is an encouragement for people who uh, are struggling with setbacks in their career or life or whatever and just persevering and the way you persevered and kept going and through politics and through pre-selection and, yeah, big encouragement. Oh, no, definitely. I mean, it's because you, you know, you have that sense at times that look, God's, I think God's taken me this direction and, and then you go and you wait and you wait and then nothing happens. Um, and there were many days that um, I kind of thought, well, that, yeah, that was a nice idea, but obviously that's not what, what's, what's meant for me. Mm. Um, you know, the last pre-selection I was about to pull out of the one I'd won, mm. and I made the decision to pull out because I, I was up against someone. I, the numbers were right against me. I really had no chance of winning. And, you know, John Howard um, called my father and out of nowhere and just said, look, I heard your son's running for that seat. Tell him he needs to stay in uh, because we need people like him in politics. And that was the, the day after I decided I was going to pull out and we're going to tell people on the weekend. So there were, <laughs> there were moments where just you take the action yourself, but then there felt like there was intervention. So, you know, 10, ten years is a long time, though. Yeah. So looking back on your time as Premier, any highlights for you? We'll go positives, you know. Particular <laughs> Look, I think the um, well that that first day was special. I, I look, it was hard to uh, put words. You, you you got to meet some incredible people, you know, in in the journey. But what what you saw actually was these unbelievable group of heroes. You know, from community to community. You spend time. You know, I met uh, June down in Manly. Forty years. You know, wheels on. No, hang on, Mills on Wheels. I always get that around the wrong <laughs> way. 40 years service and to have the chance to hear it. Down at, down at uh, Manly Village Private, there was this um, guy who, um, is it the caretaker? He did, did the maintenance and, anyway, he was big part of He used to come along. He was there for 30 years, knew every student. And I was able to give him like a Premier's Award. I've never heard a standing ovation. All parents were in tears, all kids were in tears. Someone that had a massive impact on people's lives. Um, I was able to speak about Bear Cottage, you know, children's hospice down in Manly that you might know. Um, no government funding. Uh, they desperately needed sort of funding, uh, some capital funding, uh, and was able to speak in Parliament. And you know, the health minister came along to Bear Cottage at, at my behest, and then gave a million dollars, you know, to do the. And and I came back that day and said to Karen, I said, look, you know, that. The whole thing's worth it just for that, you know, to get money towards Bear Cottage. So, but seeing the work of those in Bear Cottage, seeing the work, we've got these unbelievable counsellors that are dealing with kids in family and community services, you know, day in, day out, helping people, the SES and what they do. Like that, that was probably the highlight. Meeting all these groups and people 
behind this, you know, no papers, you know, no media, just caring for people and doing incredible work. Yeah, that probably, you know, was the biggest highlight. We were talking before just at dinner about, um, I imagine would be one of your lowlights, I don't know if you'd use that word, but the Lint Cafe experience. Do you want to share a little bit about what that was like for you uh, leading through that really difficult time? Yeah, it's, 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 um, it still impacts me to this day that, I mean, um, yeah, the, the context, it was a really um, tough time. I don't, you, you probably can't remember, but the, 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 the jihad, um, jihadists and their sort of potential risk, um, each morning that I was just, I saw the former police commissioner today, Andrew Scipione, you know, would contact me in terms of update. I mean, we, we had, there are planes that were 10, 10 kilometres up in the sky that were covertly watching various groups. There was this high risk um, that, you know, the people, innocent people in New South Wales were going to be impacted by these actions. And there, there is a tension that comes with that and, um, you know, and this kind of overwhelming sense of responsibility of trying to keep people safe. Um, so, so when this event happens, it was right in the middle of that and it's kind of your worst nightmare. Uh, and I was about to do a... A press conference, like 9am in the morning, I think, um, and it was about um, mental health, a mental health announcement, and before I went to do the press conference, my security um, person's come across and said, you know, Premier, there's been an incident, there's a number of people that are held hostage in the Lynn Cafe, and you're going to have to go to the crisis command as soon as you finish this. Um, you know, so then you had to go do your press conference and then go. Um, and look, I think the, the thing about that whole period every ounce of your being and everyone that was in the crisis command centre. I mean, there's educations there trying to work out whether there are um, school excursions in the city, how to get them up. Health was there, clearing all the various hospitals to make sure that they had the emergency rooms available. Transport was there, making sure they were looking for risk, um, trying to make sure that there was uh, access to and from the city. Um, and obviously the police are there <coughs> and the commissioner. But everything's about getting everyone out safe. And, you know, everyone played a role. And, you know, subsequent, the, you know, obviously the police had some criticism. But, you know, I, I went and met, you know, each and every one of those officers that went in there. You know, they went in there. Um, the lead officer, they, they rotate. You know, those, those tactical officers, they rotate who goes in first. Um, and, you know, when it's your time, you know, they will ring, you know, their wife and... Uh, they'll ring and they'll talk to their kids because they just don't know. And, you know, so there's this, you know, I, I understand there are things that could have been done better, but I can tell you every single one of them were prepared to put their life on the line for everyone in there. Um, so by the time, you know, we got to the event, um, I'd went to a hotel room at 1am. Uh, they, you know, they said, look, get three hours sleep, you know, come back at, at 430 and, uh, you know, we'll keep going. But put my head on a pillow, then 207 got the call. Um, and as I got the call, um, I heard the ambulances going through the city. And there's, you know, I can't describe how I felt. It was like the whole world disappeared, swallowed me up. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the, the amazing thing uh, you know, sort of after that was, um, you know, I was able to, with the commissioner, who's actually a... Christian man, Andrew, Andrew Scipioni, I'm sure, sure you, you may or may not be aware, but a very strong man of faith. Um, we had to go out and do a press conference, obviously tell the city and Australia and you know, the people around the world watching, um, we were able to pray together. 
you know, we just we just went up by ourselves and we prayed before we went through the doors. Yeah. Um, and the prayer was that he'd help, he would help us to bring peace and, and unity um, and clarity to, to the city because there was anger and hurt and despair. And, you know, there was a, it could have tipped, I think, into deep anger um, quite easily uh, and violence, uh, and it didn't. And it was, it was quite a beautiful period afterwards. Um, you I know, think you did a brilliant job of that. I, mean, I might be wrong, but I remember you doing it. I think it was a Facebook status about hope during that time. And I think you did a great job at, at bringing the city together. Well, I think, yeah, I think, no, I think God was at work, and that's the thing. If, we, if, you, if you have a look at that, those flowers, remember the flowers, yeah. and it's just this deep symbolism of, of people who put their lives on hold to go and say, look, you know, you know we, we choose you know, the values of our city. You know, we, we choose love. We want to give respect and, and love and concern to the victims and their families uh, and also the hostages. Um, but you know, that, it's, it's hard to describe the impact. Uh, I mean, I, I've, having left politics, I ended up getting counselling over it wow. uh, because it's, it's impacted me. And, you know, there's times where I just get emotional uh, out of nowhere. Um, <clears throat> more just thinking, um, you know, about those lives that have been lost. And, you know, is there anything you could have done? You know, that's the, that, that's the thing. Is there anything that we could have done? Um, and, you know, there's obviously all types of theories and approaches that could have been. But, um, yeah, I, I think what came after in terms of the beauty, I, I got approached by uh, 12 young Muslim leaders that wanted to go and put flowers down, and, uh, but they were afraid in terms of response. And I said, no, no, well, I'll go with you. And so I went with them, you know, right down to the main part where people were in flowers. And as we were doing it, there were, there were dozens and dozens of people that were hugging hugging them, you know, patting them on the bat, um, saying thank you. And, they, and as we put them down, they, you know, they had tears in their eyes. And, they, and the leader said to me, I've never felt more part of Australia than, than today. So there was some deep goodness, I think, that, that came out of it, notwithstanding how awful it was. And it sounds like something that the Lord grew you through as well, that kind of trial, depending on him and prayer. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, very much so. So as you think back on your time, particularly in politics, but I suppose even in your role now, you've been in lots of leadership roles since then, um, you've faced moments where you've had to make decisions that are often unpopular. And um, plenty of people in this room, I'm sure, face those experiences every day in their careers where perhaps they have to choose between what their convictions are saying is right to do and, you know, what's, what people want you to do. Do you want to share about how you navigated some of those decisions? I mean, you're in a role where uh, the popular opinion could literally cost you your job when it comes to the vote. How, yeah. did, how did you navigate those tensions? Look, I think, I mean, as, as a Christian, you, uh, I mean, you start by anchoring your day and your thinking um, you know, in, in the word and, and prayer and a reorientation back to the kingdom because it was every day you kind of felt dragged and pulled in so many different directions. So there's, I think that was really important. Whatever decision you're making, you know, making sure that um, you're reorientated and thinking. And, you know, I think that that discipline is helpful. Um, but in the process itself, I mean, yes, there were moments of, of prayer. I really don't know what to do here. You know, can you help me or just give me a direction? Um but, uh, you know, quite simply, I mean, popular, not popular, the, the question is getting good counsel, you know, what is the right thing to do 
um, and trying to stick to that as much as you possibly could. Um, because I think that what leaders, you know, leaders will use political capital wherever they are. Um, you might as well lose it for, for what you believe in and what you think is right, you know. And, and that to me is where a lot, a lot of leaders go wrong. You know, they'll, they'll try and take a populist position or they'll try and make a compromise position. I mean, there's all types of compromises, but, you know, my, the fundamental point is some of the unpopular decisions and, you know, I mean, lockout laws is a good one um, as an example. You know, if you, if you try and do what is right and, and kind of what you believe in, then as criticism comes, which inevitably it will, well, at least you're being criticised for those two things, you know, rather than actually getting criticised for, I don't actually believe in this, but, you know, I've got to do this politically. Um, and I think that, look, you know, leaders of all different persuasions, uh, politics, CEOs, NGOs, there's not a day you don't have to make a decision that's not popular. You know, so I think that that lens and sort of understanding, good counsel, you know, starting with the word good counsel and then ultimately trying to land on what you think is right is probably, it's not the perfect formula, but it's a formula that I think worked. I imagine, though, in those moments where you had to make unpopular decisions, it would have impacted your family, not just you, but your family. Yeah. And, and of course, plenty of the other um, tensions and, and, and pressures you had in your job. What was that like? How did it impact your family and not just your type as Premier, but I guess some of your roles since then? On, yeah, no, that's, that's the hardest. Um, you know, I mean, I, uh, w when I left politics, you know, one of the things I said, well, it's, you know, there, there is family elements. I go, oh, yeah, they all say that. Um, I, can't, I can't begin to describe how deeply held that was. Um, like, I mean, the lockout laws, my, my daughter almost got bullied out of the city, you know, and, you know, by her friends and others, um, and she never, ever told me. Never, ever told me. Um, so, you know, she only said how proud she was, actually, you know, at the time. So, uh, you know, that, you know, why should she have to go through that because I'm trying to do something or, or serve that... You, you know, as a father, I'm sure everyone here can understand how deeply, you know, wounding that is to a, to a father. Um, you know, I had someone out the front of our place that was it, um, was stopped at 3am with a knife, you know, and, and, he, and he had given a death threat. You know, we had um, drones circle our house for an hour getting video footage of every corner. Um, you, know, they, 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 you know, that is so unnerving for a family. Um, I had uh, radio stations uh, run into our garage, you know, like as a prank, you know, ha ha, you know, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> while my kids are going to school, you know, and, and, um, and then sometimes in the morning at 4.50am, 4, 4 you know, I'm lying there with my wife and on our, our bedroom is at the front of the house and there's lights dancing along the ceiling and it's the TV cameras kind of that have set up to get their comment for the day. You know, so, so all of that has this unbelievable impact on the family um, that y you have to take some actions to protect them and, you've, and in your week you've, you've got to prioritise them and that, I probably got better on that as, as I went, um, if the truth be known, but it's, no, it's, it's a cost. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about that in terms of um, balancing work, stress, family, not just that though, uh, life, is a, life is a believer, being part of a local church, which you are, 
can you share a little bit about that? Because I'm sure that's something that plenty of people struggle with uh, in this room. How, how have you managed that across your time? Well, look, I mean, not, not well. You know, like I don't, I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert at this as I'm not. Um, but I, I really, I really um, try to prioritise the kids and key events and key moments. And, um, you know, my wife and I had a date night once a week and we, I kept that all the way through being Premier and have kept it all the way to the start. I've had that about 15 years. For those that led the five love languages, I don't know whether you've read that book, um, but my wife's, I didn't know, it was quality time. Um, and so, kind of wrong job. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> um, so, uh, but once we worked that out, gosh, it was helpful. Yeah. And, you know, so... How did you fight to keep that in the calendar? Well, no, so, so the, your diary's not your own, but I, I have this incredible EA who's still with me, uh, Bill. And, um, but it didn't matter who was coming to town. If date night was date night. And if I had to do school drop-off, I had to do school drop-off. And, you know, the temptation is... Well, there are other things that take priority. Very easy. Oh, no, this meeting now. Now I have this IT committee meeting that I really need to do this week, so the only slot is here. That I, the last 18 months of the time I was Premier, I stopped that. Wow. And, and that was game-changing. And I've kept that kind of ever since. I, I went to, you know, all the sport that, that they had on. That was the priority on the Saturday. If I had to do a press conference, it was around the kids' sport. It wasn't the other way around. Oh, wow. um, and I think that that, that was... The mindset and the approach just kept the discipline and, and the exercise that I tried to do, that was an important part of the regime as well. You know, my time at church, you know, I didn't do any media around or near church. That was, that was what I wanted to go to. Um, so I think that discipline uh, is, it's not foolproof, you know, but, it, but it's helpful. I mean, the, for those who remember the Phil Hughes funeral, um, you know, that day my son was actually getting his prefect badge you know, as at, at in year six, and um, you know, it was I had to be there. But then, how do you be in two spots at once? Um, and the school enabled it to bring the prefect ceremony early, so I could get out and sort of fly to the airport and get up there. But it still, it felt a bit interrupted. If you know, like I still felt that I'd kind of ripped him off a little bit. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm glad that I was there. And, you know, notwithstanding there was a significant state event on. So, but that tension, I think that's the test. You know, that you really are trying to, to be there for the key moments and your kids despite the chaos. Because many of us in stressful moments, we just drop everything and just focus on the most pressing thing. I mean, are you some kind of superhuman that... Uh, how, do you do, how do you do it? Because surely you've been in high-stress situations and... Well, no, but as I said, like, I, you know, so it was the last two years of Premier, so I don't know how old I was in there. Like, it, it took, like, 47 years to get there, right? So, like, I, I think, um, yeah, no, just, just, just through the practice. And there is. I mean, of course there's consuming events, you know. I mean, they're, they're, it, it just happens. But I think that framework and approach, uh, you know, kind of really helped. And, you know, now with my team, you know, I'm very clear when I talk to my team, you are a much more effective leader the more you connect into those you love and what you love, you know. So, that, so there's just this balance. Like, yes, you know, you've got an important job. Looking after some of the complex dementia requires all types of challenges, but, you know, what do you love doing? Well, you've got to include that in your week. Who do you love? You've got to connect with them during the week. And, you know, as an organisation, we've got to have some flexibility around that. And I think that, you know, leaders can help provide that opportunity and window 
for, for everyone. You're a great example of someone who has integrated their faith in Jesus with what they do nine to five, or for you more than nine to five, I'd imagine, um, in their workplaces. And you're very thought through on some of these things in your Christian convictions. Can you help us think through in our in our lives at work? How do we how do we how does our faith shape the way we go about our work? I'd imagine in this room there there's probably perhaps two extremes. Some people who um, find work perhaps monotonous and um, just don't enjoy it, or perhaps the other way, um, it's become an idol. It's something that they live for that they find their identity in. Um, how do any wisdom for us about faith and work? Yeah, look, I, um, Eugene Peterson was incredible on this to me. He, um, when I sat and listened to him and spoke to him actually about this exact topic, he said, look, uh, God is everywhere. Um, you, you just need to get in on what he's doing. And the greatest form, he said, for, for most of us, the, the greatest form uh, of spiritual formation actually happens in the workplace. Um, so that kind of turns it on its head and, you know, as you go into work, um, you know, God, you know, was a worker. I mean, you, you kind of read what he did. I mean, look at his creation. Um, you know, look at the, the week that's been set up. You know, we're, we're, we're created to work. We should work. Um, work is good. Uh, and it's wide and varied. Um, Robert Banks has got a book, God the Worker, where he goes through all different elements in careers, talking about, you know, biblical reflections on how God, you know, is a musician. Um, you know, there, there's all types of things. So I think it's, um, it's being alert to that and it's living that. And whether it be in relationships, whether it be in the decisions, I mean, we, I'm in the midst of a restructure at the moment. And, you know, my hope is that as I've connected into the people that are impacted, I'm doing that in a way that is, that is caring and supportive and uh, explaining um, the, the rationale. But there are personal elements and you know how do you connect on that level not just on an organizational level um but also be prepared to be surprised you know i saw, I saw this incredible moment where um i was down at one of our facilities um there's a, a resident out in his backyard and and he's ripping branches off the hedges and he's throwing them kind of into the yard and over the fence and I'm kind of watching, okay, does this happen a lot? Or, uh, and they said, yeah, no, this is Pops. That's what Pops does. And no other resident has complained about it. Uh, no other family who's part of this cottage has complained about it. So, so we let Pops do that. And I thought, that's, that, that, that's actually quite beautiful. I love that. And they said, no, but it's actually, when you understand his story and who he is, it's actually even more significant. Because he used to be in an orphanage in Italy. And he was the eldest there. And at night, they never got enough food. So at night he used to break out of the orphanage and there were all these fruits and berries around the orphanage that he used to sort of go and forage and take and bring back to the cottage. And they think he's kind of replicating that to his new cottage, you know, even though it's, you know, so what's this potentially terrible behaviour is beautiful. And, like, I, I think the beauty of holding him up and caring for him and loving him and his story, like, it just feels, you know, almost as God would. He cares deeply for him. He's not looking at him taking off the branches. He's looking at him and who he is and his story. And, you know, so you just look and, and you know, you'll be surprised, I think, on where God is and what he's doing and the role you can play. So there's a, there's a discipline, I think, that comes with that. I love the way you talk about your faith and how it impacts your work because often, you know, you hear people say the only reason 
you're in secular work is so that you have opportunities to tell people about Jesus or so that you can earn money to give to God's work. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? You know, work is part of the way in which we live as a disciple of Jesus. 100%, yeah. I mean, we've got a guy in our, in, in our workplace that's uh, been convicted of a significant crime and is, you know, deep contrition, incredibly sorry. And, you know, there's a redemption element, you know, to giving that opportunity and caring for him. So... I think there are we limit ourselves in terms of the opportunities and and the way to do it and you know I think you know we show you know through our love and our actions the gospel you know yes we have the opportunity to share the gospel but there's there's almost a, an infinite opportunity in terms of the way we act and how we interact um, that kind of shines a light I think it's been um, just looking back in the last few weeks um, there's been a lot of talk obviously in our church, but around Christians in our, in our country about what it looks like to be a Christian in the public sphere. Um, you have uh, what's happened with, you know, Andrew Thorburn, Thorburn um, and Essendon. Have you got any reflections about what it looks like to be a Christian in the public sphere? I mean, just talking to people in our church, I think there are people who uh, are fearful, um, who are fearful that they don't know what to say, uh, worried about the future. Any, any reflections on last few weeks? Look, I think it's, um, it's all of those. I mean, Andrew Thorburn's actually a, a good friend of mine and um, I spoke to him last Friday and he, he's, it's really had an impact on him. But look, I think, um, you know, we, we're called to that. We almost expect that. You know, there's, there's almost this expectation if you, if you stand up for your faith and what you believe in, you know, now and for the last 2,000 years, you're going to attract criticism. Uh, it's quite uh, virulent now. It, it, it absolutely is. But, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, my, my sense, we have to um, stand firm. And, and it's, not, it's not a sense of, um, like, just standing up and handing out two ways to live. It's not, it's not doing that. It's, it's through our actions. And it's who we are. And, and, and I think it starts with, with love and care and concern, um, you know, and our actions will tell us. You know, when, when our team, are, uh, you know, we're an independent Christian organisation, but when our team are sort of taking people that others won't or can't with complex dementia, well, that's living Jesus' words, you know. If I'm hungry, you give me something to eat. If I'm thirsty, you give me something to drink. Like, no-one's able to do that for, the, for these beautiful people is what they are. You know, we, we see them, not their dementia. And how do we uplift them and hold them and love them just as Jesus does? And, uh, you know, so you're, you're not caught up about, you know, standing up and saying, you know, words, which is at sometimes needed and part of it. But those actions, I think, speak very powerfully, you know, very powerfully. Um, so uh, you, you, you might not be in the work I am, but it, anyone... That, that shows, you know, humility and love and kindness and respect, we are standing up. And if you're asked to speak about your faith, you do. I mean, I was at an organisation, well, no secret, NAB. Um, anyone from NAB here? Is there any NABbers? I think there's a few. Is there really? There's no one put their hand up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's one at the back. But Every uh, second person in our church works for a bank, I think. That's oh, really? 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 <laughs> but, the, but they went round and... Um, I was told as a leader I had to wear a, a rainbow star, you know, and, you know, complex issue, what do you do with that? Um, 
and uh, you know, I, I, I did debate about it and think, what, you know, what's the best way to approach it? Because I, I don't think the church has, has done a great job at all there. But, you know, I made sure that during Pride Week I wore it. Like, it's a clear symbol that, that look, you know, I support you. Uh, I understand the hurt. Everyone should be included. You know, the last thing I want to do uh, is to send any message other than that. Um, but I didn't wear it every other week, and I was waiting for a question from my team on that, you know, because the same thing. I say, look, everyone should be included, you know, whether you're from that community or you're a Hindu community or a Muslim community or a Christian community. Like, you know, it's not like every week we include. Um, so that, you know, that's the way I kind of wrestled with it. Is that the perfect answer? It's not. But at least I did talk to some friends and counsel on how do I kind of respond to that issue and... Um, came to it. Yeah, so whether that's a small, relatively small issue, but, you know, every day there's an opportunity to think, well, you know, how do I represent my faith and, and, and what I believe in this situation, these circumstances, and it's unending, I think. You mentioned um, how well Christians have gone and engaging in issues. Have you got any tips for the average believer in terms of how we can engage in political issues? Is it something that we do well at as a church? Ah, um, no, no, <laughs> no, no. It, look, it is, it, it's, I can't tell you, and, and, you know, probably here, I mean, everyone would feel something similar. And I think your last talk was on loneliness, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah our first recharge, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the loneliest I've ever felt in my life was, was as Premier, um, I, I couldn't, there wasn't a day where I, I'd come into a room of a thousand people and I was about as lonely as you could imagine. Why and, was that? Uh, because there's, uh, you, you, in that room, you're not necessarily a person. Right? So you, you, you're the role, you're the responsibility. And invariably they want to hear something or want you to do something. Um, but no one asks, you know, hey Mike, how you doing? Um, and to me, you see the church in political discourse on the issues that are of interest to them. What, what, what you don't do is see the church just go and connect with your local member. Who cares what political... I couldn't care what political party. You know, how can we support you? How can we pray for you? Um, how are you going? Um, it must be tough. Can we do anything for your kids? Like, is there any way we can look after you? Um, and it's not saying that they're special. It's the same with you know, any leaders, you know, or senior managers in organisations that are part of the church, how do we connect in with them and provide support to what they're doing? Because it's lonely, you know. I mean, there'll be senior corporate leaders here that will feel very lonely in their organisation. Um, so how do we connect into them? So I think that more broadly into politics, which is specific, which is gen generically, I think churches that kind of connect, you know, at the individual level and are not there just oh, we now have this bill and we want you to vote a particular way, which is what everyone else does. You know, we're there because we care for you and we love you. And, and I think that the church could be incredibly influential if it took that place, took that approach across the country. Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a five-minute break for dessert. Please do not go far, gentlemen. Um, after that, we're going to come back and it's a chance, I'm going to throw open questions to the floor. So you might want to think about some questions you might want to ask Mike. Uh, but even now, would you thank Mike for all that he shared? Thank you so much.
Well, I'm sure you can agree it's already been a brilliant night. Hearing from Mike, uh, hearing Mike's wisdom, hearing Mike's story, I've been encouraged and um, built up, so thank you already for all that you shared. Um, we have two roving mics um, around the room, so I'm going to throw it open to you, be bold. Um, uh, Mike's used to uh, answering hard questions from journalists, so uh, see if you can throw him and make him sweat. <laughs> uh, so over to you if anyone wants to kick us off with a question. I think we're going to stew it up the back there. Thank you. And, and Mike, thank you. That was a wonderful, um, one, wonderful overview of your, your Christian journey. Um, can, I, can I ask you a slightly thorny question about your relationship with Christians in opposition? I'm sure you've either been through a situation or watched others in it where uh, you have had someone whom you regard as a Christian brother or sister friend in the, in the opposition, and there's times where you perhaps have prayed together with them, dear Jesus. And uh, in a more political context, uh, I'm sure you've watched other people then be attacked uh, for political reasons where it's got quite vicious. How on earth do you deal with that? as a Christian in politics? Yeah, look, I, um, I mean, I have seen it. Like, I, I had uh, friends across uh, the aisle and um, good friends. And, and I joined the Christian fellowship group and there were kind of Labor and Liberal... Uh, I was going to say Greens, but no, actually, no Greens came. LAUGHTER <laughs> I've realised. I did get on with some Green members, so they weren't part of the Christian Fellowship Group. But Are you saying there's a Christian Fellowship Group for politicians? Is that what you... Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, but, look, it, it was uh, unusual. You know, it was an unusual environment, and there is a... Um, people were sharing, but there's a natural sense of, you know, caution, um, you know, when you, you are. But, look, uh, you know, I think... Um, I, I think there's too much time thinking about the political badge. And, like, I um, remember when Nathan Rees, um, you might remember him, he was Premier for a short period. He was, he was put in too early, um, you know, by power breakers. They had kind of nowhere to turn. He was, you know, a relatively young guy, talented, but uh, too early. And he, he just had an awful six months. And, um, and he and I connected as we came into Parliament at the same time. And, you know, part of the, the leaders' group. And I saw him coming uh, probably about three or four weeks before they finally rolled him. And uh, he was coming with his entourage. And I said, how are you? And I could see in his eyes. And he, and he said, look, do you mind, um, to his entourage, can you just go, I just want to talk to Mike. And we were in the corner, just he and I. And, and I said, look, Nathan, um, you know, don't listen to them. You know, you're, you're worth is not in this role. You know, you have far more to offer than all of your critics are saying, and don't let them define you. You know, I'm on the other side. I know that you've got talent. I know the difference that you can make. Um, and just know that people care for you. And he, he got quite emotional in that, but that wasn't a, you know, let me give you two ways to live. I think that was just a, a moment of humanity and care. And I didn't care that he was a Labor Premier or a Labor politician. I, I knew that someone was deeply hurting. Um, and, I, and I think that that hopefully is the mark of 
kind of Christian politicians. I mean, we need more Christian politicians. But it doesn't, I honestly think, you know, sometimes as, as churches we, we focus a little too much on the political badge rather than the person. And my hope is that the Christian leaders in the parliament think otherwise. Um, I mean, I, I got Nathan, I did a, a hike uh, once a year with some disadvantaged youths and I got him to come along as well. Like, do just trying to symbolise, like, we're actually, like, it doesn't matter what you're politically, we, we're all here to support disadvantaged kids, surely. You know, can we work together on that? Um, so I think that's the, the approach. And when someone is being attacked unfairly, I mean, I've, I've texted people like Christina Keneally, I've, um, you know, Albo himself. There's the, you do connect in on a human level. You know, the, not everyone. Some people are very partisan, but I think that that's hopefully uh, a kind of much more Christian approach, you know, that you're there for the people, uh, not necessarily for, you know, the, pol the political victory of the day, if that makes sense. Any, another question? Okay, there, Mike. Just a simple question. Why Regent? What were the strengths that drew you to Regent College and how do you think it... Well, you've spoken a bit about the formation it gave you, but, uh, yeah, the strengths. <laughs> didn't you go there, Michael? No. Oh, you didn't go there. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Look, no, I mean, Regent, um, for me, I, um, I, I was attracted by... Eugene Peterson and J.R. Packer. Um, I was aware of other sort of friends that had gone and they told me about the incredible story. But I also loved the, the symbolism of the, there were Christians around the world kind of gathered um, and there were people that were taking a year off their career, become ministers and missionaries. And I thought that, that whole combination blew my mind um, and I became quite intoxicated with it. So it was more, I, I think... Um, Eugene Peterson used to say his number one job is to take Christians out of the warehouse. You know, the, we kind of think of God in this, like the construct of this church, that that's how we... And he says, no, no, come out the front door and look up. You know, the wonder and the majesty and the power and the grace, the, you know, the all-consumingness of all of that. Um, and, and I think that... You know, that, that global perspective, you know, the churches from all across the world, like to have that, you know, I think was what, what attracted me, that, that sense of um, bigness and wonder. Um, so, yeah, so it was, it was yeah, I, I mean, obviously I would deeply recommend Regent, but, but anywhere, you know, I think kind of taking that time and that thinking uh, would be great. Um, and J.I. Packer, like I don't know if... If anyone has put in an exam paper to J.I. Packer, anyone else here has done that. Uh, but I had to put in a paper on systematic theology to J.I. Packer uh, where I had to criticise one of his, his uh, theories. It, it didn't go well. <laughs> um, but I learned a lot from him. He was amazing. So. Favourite J.I. Packer book? Knowing God. Knowing God. Yeah. Uh, my <clears throat> vulnerability as a leader and being prepared to say sorry, perhaps, or some of the other uh, characteristics. Different in politics to business or similar? And do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's great. No, zero difference. I, I, I think the, the greatest currency 
a leader can have is, is vulnerability. And, um, you know, going around a table and say, look, I don't know what we're going to do here. You know, I'm, I'm quite frankly out of ideas, but we'll find a way through it. You know, I, I think, um, or look, I know that you all spoke about this, I went this way, I got it wrong, you're right. We're going to fix it. There's great power in that. And I think it creates fellowship. Um, and I think Christ modelled it. You know, the ultimate humility, you know, of laying down his life, you know, for us. Um, if, if you ask me the, the, the one thing that attracts me to, to leaders, it is, it is their humility. I just, I just think it is, you know, humility that, and with humility comes the ability to be vulnerable and, and open. And I think it's very hard to be an authentic leader without it. I, you know, I met a, a huge array of leaders. The, the one that, that stood out was actually Joe Biden. I spent a day with him and he, you know, second most powerful person in the world. You know, I'm kind of the leader of the, you know, relatively... Fantastic jurisdiction, can I say? You know, <laughs> he was quite lucky um, to be in New South Wales. Um, but on it, you know, think of all the people he meets across the world. He he spent a lot of the day asking me about me. You know, when I was speaking about being lonely, he he connected into me personally and wanted to know about my kids and their dreams and the challenges. Um, so there was something absolutely captivating about that to me to be in that position and that interested in someone on the other side of the world in a relatively small jurisdiction. Um, so I, I, it's a, but it doesn't matter where you are, you know, whether you're leading uh, an accounting division, you know, a, a marketing team, you know, an NGO or a CEO. Like, I, I think that vulnerability a leader is, is absolutely a cornerstone of success because that brings you the buy-in. You, you, you're being real and you're being genuine. Uh, and you're being vulnerable, which is going to build trust. Thank you. Mike, we often, I often wonder why Christians would go into politics. Um, because the party machines are the things that speak louder, it seems to me, than the individuals within it. Now, I may be quite wrong, but that's an outsider's view. So how does a Christian cope with that particular system which takes... A, a vote within that party group to make a decision that may be one that you oppose anyway. So what was the last bit? That, 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 that you may not agree with, even as the Premier, that, as a Christian anyway, as a Christian. Right. Yeah, look, I, don't, I, I can't... I, I, I mean, yes, you have to compromise, but I, I don't think... Um, I honestly don't think I had to compromise my faith, um, sort of being a public life. And uh, look, I think yeah, often what people will put forward are the, the challenges and the problem in politics, and they're many and multiple. Um, but but as I said to you, like you know, whatever system, and yes, there are there are there are factions and others. I I wasn't officially part of any faction. Um, you know, I had one faction that that kind of. Um, always said they were going to support me, they never did. Um, and, and then the only time that they supported me was when I was running against someone that had um, hijacked a plane, a Red Cross plane in Botswana. Um, they managed to find their way to support me over him, but only just. Like, you know, 
so you don't, like, they, they, they do play a role, but, um, you know, to me, it's pretty simple. Like, do I love this community? Do I want to have the opportunity to serve them and give my all to serve them? Um, as part of that, do I want to be a chance to be part of a government and do likewise? And all the rest take care of itself. You know, I generally think that, yes, there are moments that you need to consider and there are challenges and it's constraining, but the opportunity to serve your community is, is incredibly powerful. Uh, I mean, I door knocked over 13,000 homes um, to win the seat. I know, well, only just won the seat by a few hundred votes. Um, but hearing people's voices and what they would love to see from, you know, their leader, what an incredible way to start. So when I went into Parliament, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because I'm like, what an honour and privilege. All those people that I've spoken to, I'm going to represent here, I'm going to put everything into that. You know, so I'm not thinking about the factions or the party. Yes, I was proud to support my party, but they was why I was walking into that chamber. Um, you know, and I think that's, to me, part of the... The, the mindset. There's amazing opportunities. And as I said, when, when, when I got the money for Bear Cottage, the whole thing was worth it. You know, I felt um, each day you can make a difference and do something significant. And that's just part of the, the challenge that goes in that environment. So if you've got questions, make sure you stick up your hands high so that our um, uh, Roman mics can find you. Whenever you hear from Moritz. So, Mike, thanks very much for a very encouraging talk. Um, just thinking back to your time in Regent College, if you could go back there again, would you still go back into politics? And on the flip side, if you could go back to Regent College now, would you complete your ministry training? <laughs> That's such a good question. I've never been asked that. Um, look, the answer to the last would be, would be no, but... It's, there's no, neither a right nor wrong, right? I mean, I think there's, there's an opportunity to serve whichever path that I, I, I went down. So um, I haven't gone back to reflect on it, but if I had chosen to be a minister, I would have loved it. I mean, I'd, I'd, like, there was a church in the US where I was gonna do my uh, internship. Um, I'd had an agreement with the archbishop back here um, that after I'd done two years, I was gonna do two years and more and then, you know, come into the system. Yeah, so it was lined up. It was, it was quite clear that that's, that's where I was going to go. So it wasn't just a small thought. I'd um, put a lot into it. Um, but I'd, I kind of got turned on its head, as I said, from that first paper, and, and then I tested it and thought about it. We sometimes actually... have gaps in our preaching program here. We're looking for a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, we, we had Sunday. I think Sunday was on Boxing Day this year. And we right, right. Anyway. Um, no, so, so I, I would have, I think I would have loved that. Um, but, but I've loved the, the path I've taken. And I, I did go back to Regent College and, and spoke uh, on, um, you know, living life in the public square, actually, Christianity in the public square. And my reflection was this. I, I said when I left Regent College, it was like a shiny train, you know, a steam, steam engine you know, that kind of pulled out, you know, bright red, silver, you know, majestically puffing and roared away. And, you know, I'd done a loop and came back in 
and there was not much puff. Uh, there were dents and scratches and, you know, it, it, had, it had been on a journey. And I think that's our life, right? I mean, I think um, the Christian journey is one of challenges and thorns and despairs. I mean, anyone's read kind of Pilgrim's Progress, you've, you go through the valleys. Um, you, you have incredible tough moments and events that take their toll personally on you. Um, but, you know, notwithstanding, I'd come back exhausted emotionally, physically, spiritually, uh, drained, but every moment was worth it. Every moment. I feel it was a privilege, uh, as is everyone's life here, you know, the chance to serve in all different ways. Um, so I, d- I do think... Uh, being a minister is incredibly important. And it's, you know, our ministers and our missionaries have got very specific, incredibly important roles. But, you know, there are other roles, you know, as, as part of the, the broad kingdom. And I think that what we need to do is connect all of them in, in many respects. Question over here. Thank you so much again for sharing and thank you so much for sharing that incident that happened in the cafe and uh, how you reacted. Um, it was incredible and I was, it was so emotional as well, uh, the way that you shared. Um, I was, I'm a Iranian, I was born Muslim and I raised Muslim. Um, I'm just trying to formulate my question the best way. Um, how did you deal with the situation that you wanted to everyone be united and you don't, didn't want to be probably uh, labeled against these Muslim people, part of the NSW um, population. And also, at the same time, um, that you wanted to love them, but at the same time, you know that their spirit who forced the jihadi to kill citizens is behind they Islam they, behind that religion as well, and also that you know they are not saved and they are lost. Um, I'm trying to share the gospel between my, uh, you know, um, between Iranian and Muslim people, and uh, yeah, I just want to know how to do, how did you deal with that situation? Yeah, well, I mean. Firstly, thanks for your ministry. I mean, that, you know, what an incredible ministry um, and journey you've been on. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm just uh, so thankful for you and, and what you're doing, so important. Um, uh, look, I think, you know, what, what, one of the interesting things, um, uh, you know, as, as a political leader, like you, you govern for all. And, and I certainly didn't see my role to, to legislate my faith. Yeah, that's that. That's not. It's to it's to love all, government to rule, and um, you know the time was was challenging with with the Muslim community, um, so I spent time with them. You know, I got to know their elders and their their leaders, and this this young Muslim group who I met with a couple of times. Um, you know, interesting the way that relationship played out. You know, down the track, um, but I, I I met with church leaders on how do we build a bridge, you know, into the Muslim community. And there's, there is, there's fear and concern, as you rightly articulated. Um, but, you know, at, at E, they would bring you in for meals. They'd bring the community into their houses. And I, I said to the church leaders, why don't we ask the church 
to do likewise. Let's bring the Muslim community into our houses and let's share, you know, relationship. And, you know, obviously, um, to me, that's what I think would be quite powerful. Um, but I didn't get a strong response, you know, from the, the church leaders at the time that, that I spoke to. I, um, and during Eid, I, I actually fasted, you know, with the, the Muslim community because I fast. And I made it clear, as, as Christians, we fast and pray, um, just as you do. And so I did that, but I had some Christians that thought that for me to empathise and sympathise with the Muslim community by doing that was outrageous. Indeed, I won't even begin to describe one piece of correspondence I got uh, from a church pastor down in down in Nowra. I mean, he basically called me the Antichrist, is what he did. Um, <laughs> And so I saw this correspondence, so I picked up the phone and spoke to him. I said, oh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> it's Mike. <laughs> Mike who? Uh, Mike Baird. Mike Baird? Yeah. What, the Premier? Yeah. What? <laughs> why, are you, why are you calling me? Um, and I said, what, what, where does that come from? Like, you know, like I, I'm trying to care and engage and love the Muslim community. And surely that's, that, that's where you start. You know, and then there's all types of opportunities, as you're doing, to, to share faith in the way. Um, anyway, long story short, he asked me down to his church, and I did. I, I, I preached down there, actually. Um, well, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is kind of a, a strange, weird whole world. But, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, wh wherever we are, you know, I think there's an opportunity for us, whether it be the Muslim community or, or any other community, to engage lovingly, respectfully. Um, you know, I mean... Jesus, you know, he went and touched a leper, the most ostracised person you could. You know, they were unclean. If anyone saw a leper in Jesus' time, they ran from him. What did Jesus do? He had compassion for the leper. He touched the leper. Like that, neither of those things. And so that's, you know, that is distinctive. You know, and that, that to me is the model um, that's how I think we can have an impact, you know, through following what Jesus did. We've got time for one more question. The first hand that went up was in the middle there. Tim. Do you want to do it quick? You can try and do two quickly. I thought there was three. Okay, we'll try and do it too quickly. We'll go Tim and then we'll go James down yep. the front. Thanks, thanks very much for sharing tonight. It's been such an encouragement. Um, you mentioned before about how you sought to balance the, the precious demands of the roles you've done with loving your wife, loving your family. I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. How were you able to, you know, with all the, the emails and the correspondence and the demands, how were you able to kind of mentally disconnect from that and, and to prioritise them if you could just kind of elaborate a bit on that and, and maybe provide some guidance on, on people here who might have, you know, very, very time-consuming jobs. Of course, not as stressful or as important, but, um, yeah, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. No, they, they, they are. Look, I, I mean, I think every, every job has significant stresses. And, you know, so the challenge is real. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And, um, you know, I think that the, the discipline that I spoke about, I think, is, is the most important. So... If, if you're weak, uh, in your week, um, I mean, it's one thing to go to the kids' sport. It's another thing to be doing emails, taking phone calls, you know, 
practice presence, you know, would be the, what I would suggest. So it's the discipline of the diary, but then there's also practicing presence. So, so your kids know if you're there. And, and you know, I, I say that as someone that's failed miserably. And, you know, the relationship with my kids, I've got good relationship with my kids. They're not perfect. You know, my, my son and, and I yesterday had a, a long discussion about life. Um, and he feels that he's often a disappointment and, you know, he's, there's probably elements of truth in that I need to reflect on personally. I, you know, so don't, please don't think that I've got the answers because I do it as someone that is flawed and broken. Um, but I, I think that presence is so important. Uh, and it's whether it be with your wife or whether it be your kids or even your friends. Um, and that's, that's where I kind of went in and out. And presence means it's in your diary and it's email off, it's phone off, and, and you are there. And I think that's liberating because you'll get to them. But if for that period, no, you don't. And, you know, I think they will know they matter. And, and your time and engagement is so much richer. Um, but it's also finding what it is, you know, like what it is they enjoy doing or you enjoy doing with them. Um, and that's the practice. I mean, my, my wife, unfortunately, loves the opera. Um, <laughs> so I had to grizzle away through a couple of operas. Um, but, the, but the joy that she has, you know, and that, 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 that's joy to me. Um, you know, so that's, yeah, don't get me wrong. If you can get out of going to operas, please do. But I mean, <laughs> but I think you get the point. You know, I think that's really presence is giving yourself and things that you both kind of enjoy together. Um, but that, that diary thing, you know, just, just try that because that, that, that was incredibly transformational for me. So, thanks, Last mate. question from James at the front. Thank you, Mike, for your time tonight. Um, in, your, in your leadership positions and in all leadership positions, there's a balance between your personal responsibility in that position, but uh, the simple fact that you can't be doing it all yourself. How, do you, how did you um, make that distinction and practice that distinction between your personal responsibility and your ability to give that out to other responsible people? Um, and then, ultimately, how did you how did you choose to leave and cast it off and cast yourself out of that role? To, you know, leave your responsibility in hand to the responsibility to somebody else. Yeah, I'll try. I, I know I'm out of time, so I'll try. I'll try and be. I'll try and <laughs> It was be a quick. big question. I'm no, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> Look, I, I think there's a couple of things here. I think um, that uh, you know you've in terms of the team that you build and how you, you do that, you've, you've got to trust them. And I've kind of got a high wall. Once they're over the wall, it's theirs. You know, so the, the accountability is with them, but also the responsibility. And you've got to be prepared to do that. Um, but you can't lose contact with what's happening, you know, kind of across all parts of the business, wherever you are, organisation. Um, so even, at, so using example at the moment, like I, I, I go and do a buddy shift on the, on the front line just to see and hear what is happening there. You know, so I've got someone running it, but I also want to stay in touch, if, if that kind of makes sense. So you, you get the best team, you give them the responsibility, but then you never want to lose sort of an understanding of what is happening um, and, and how you gauge that. Um, but there, there is a temptation to, uh, to do things yourself. 
I haven't seen the example anywhere where actually, you know, a good team, you know, delivers far greater outcomes um, than you individually ever could. Um, I've got people on my team that have got far, far smarter than I am, they've got far more experience than I have, um, you know, they're more talented than I am in many respects, across all of them. Um, you know, that's what a team brings, you know, and that's, that's how you, as a collective, you can be stronger, you know, and I think that the best leaders, I mean, they have that, I think, so. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your honesty, your rawness, your wisdom, sharing your story, and uh, just for coming and being a part of tonight. It's so great to have you. Uh, now, if I was more organised, I would have brought it up with me. But James, there's a little gift by the side of the piano, if you don't mind getting it. I've done my research and found from your wife that you enjoy Chardonnay. So this is, uh, this is from us as a church, and we've also made a donation to Heaven Care as well uh, as, a, as a thank you. Would you put your hands together and thank Mike? <laughs>